Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, the message of salvation by God's grace is explained and defined. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, Grace Glorifies God. Romans chapter 4 for part 4 of working through this chapter together. God going to great lengths to argue and make sure there will be without a shadow of a doubt, no misunderstanding about the cause of our justification. How are we right with God? He has gone to great lengths to make sure we know this, proving again and again by example after example, but then also taking us deeper into the understanding of these things, of of how it works. Romans chapter 4, let's read verses 13 through 16 for this morning, and then we'll pray and and get into our study. Romans 4, beginning in verse 13, please read with me. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Please pray with me. Oh God in heaven, Father, we want to, we want to make the one big request that we have. Father, is to ask that you will glorify yourself, to hallow your name, Our flesh is always fighting for ways that we want credit, we want glory to put ourselves in the spotlight. But God, we we who are gathered and are in Christ, bought by his blood, God, we just want to forget ourselves for a bit and just look to you, behold your glory, see what you have done that you have ordered all things, ordained all things, wrote the story of history even before the world was made, done all of this in a way so that all will be able to see how amazing you are. And as we see it, this is our greatest joy. You are our treasure. So God, help us now. Show us more of yourself. Help us to uh, turn away from the mirrors of examining ourselves and turn instead to look at you. And please, God, do that through this truth. Lord, what you've given us in your word is we're going to think just intently on one primary point. Help us, God. Help us to see it. Help us to be changed by it. Lord, and specifically the great application from today for the Christians. God, I, I pray that we are brought to such gratitude that we are just overwhelmed and that gratitude will then turn to into worship and the worship into obedience. But I pray God for any gathered that are not yet in your kingdom, not yet in this family that you're gathering. 
God, God, I pray that the big thing that happens today will be they're drawn in, that their eyes are open to see that they have no way of being right with you on their own, but only by Christ. And I pray they look to him. So please bless this time. God, there are a thousand things that could go wrong in this time that would cause us to not be able to understand or to lose our attention. I just ask God, protect this time. Help me to preach, teach, do everything that's necessary for this to be a beneficial time of study. Please bless, cast all eyes on you, oh God. We pray this through Christ. Amen. One Sunday morning, a man walked into the church building. Service was about to start and he sits down and looks around at the crowd, making little comments to himself about some of the people he saw. And he looked across the aisle and saw one guy. He knew some of that man's backstory and began to think to himself, man, I'm really glad I'm not like that guy. And he began to pray. He bowed his head and he prayed and his prayer went something like, Lord, I'm really thankful that I'm not like these other people. I mean, I go to church every Sunday. Um, I've never been divorced. I tithe. I fast. I serve. I'm one of your good ones. But the man across the aisle also prayed. With tears in his eyes, he said, Oh God, I'm such a sinner. I don't deserve your grace. God, have mercy on me. Which one of those two went home right with God that morning? Which one of those two went home justified? Now, you probably recognize that what I just told you there is just kind of a little slightly modified version of a parable that Jesus told in the New Testament, Luke chapter 18. And in fact, I want to read it to you because it really could serve as like the introduction to this whole passage in what we've been looking at. You can join me if you want to there, but I'm, I'm going to just read it to you. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, and, and really, I, I know with every passage of Scripture, notice every word and every phrase that he uses here, okay? And, and, and notice this, the gospel that Jesus preached is obviously the same gospel that the apostles preached and is in the rest of the New Testament. But, but, but look how this goes here, Luke 18, verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves Selves that they were righteous. I emphasized it. Let that phrase linger in your minds. Trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. In, in the parable that Jesus told there, the Pharisee, he prays, seems religious. 
And he even says, thank you to God. But here, here's the question. When he says thank you to God, is he actually grateful? Is he actually exalting God? Or is he rather just congratulating himself on all of his imagined righteousness? Well, that's what Jesus points out. That's what he's doing. The tax collector, on the other hand, normally viewed in society as an ungodly man, but this particular one here, humbled by his sin, recognizes his ungodliness. The Pharisee's ungodly. He just won't recognize his ungodliness. The tax collector recognizes his ungodliness, claims nothing that he brings in his hands as the ground to be right with God, but instead, in faith, ask for mercy. Part of what Jesus is pointing out here is that trusting yourself is self-exaltation. Trusting in ourselves is an attempt to glorify ourselves. Who you trust in is who you magnify. It's where you have your attention. It's where you think your hope, your, your source comes from. And Jesus ends the parable with this explanation. The, the tax collector, the one who recognizes ungodliness, asked for mercy, actually went home justified. And that's our word. That's the word that we've been studying for these last about two chapters. And, and there's going to be more that we see uh, as we walk through this. The gospel that Jesus preached is the same as the gospel preached in the rest of the scriptures. And really Jesus's point in Luke 18 was not, his primary point was not justification by faith alone. That was not like the one central idea. It was instead about humility and self-exaltation and things, but the Bible will oftentimes preach a dozen truths on its way to teaching one truth. But the primary point that Jesus makes there in Luke 18 is also one of the points made in Romans 4 that we look at. Who you trust is who you glorify. <clears throat> Trusting yourself that you are righteous, that you imagine yourself to have something you bring to God whereby he says, that's why you're gonna enter my kingdom. That leaves us arrogant, leaves us congratulating ourselves. But comprehending this, this doctrine that we've been looking at, comprehending justification by faith alone puts us where we should be. We see God as we should. We see ourselves as we should. It humbles us, causes us uh, to see where we are in relation to him. But who you trust for your salvation is who you exalt. Believing we make ourselves righteous leads to a low view of God. Seeing the truth that I am unworthy, but there is a gift of righteousness that is offered leaves us in the right position of recognizing where we are to God. Justification by faith alone leads us to gratitude. It leads us to worship. It leads us to humility. So we've been seeing in this passage, just for the you know, kind of brief recap, We've been seeing in this passage uh, again and again that we are unable to be right with God, uh, unable to be saved. The, the technical word that's been used here is the word justified, which means to be made innocent, uh, to be declared not guilty, to be right with God, pardon of sins. We are unable to be justified, right with God, and therefore have eternal life based on any compensation for our works. 
had you and I been able to be perfectly righteous, then it would work that way. We could have gotten eternal life by compensation. But because we're sinners, because we've broken the law of God, the chance of getting it by compensation, that deal's over. But God in grace, the glory of the gospel is that he has offered another way to be just, another way to be right with him. And it has come through Christ. So all of that's been being taught and that it comes by faith. And it's all been taught using the Old Testament. Example after example from the Old Testament. Part of the point being, this isn't new. Jesus has brought a new covenant. Uh, the new covenant does have many new parts to it, but this part isn't new. That we're made right with God by faith. Ever since Adam and Eve fell, broke the law of God, and ruined our chance of being righteous by works, God offered this way of being right with him by faith. And so as we've been walking through this passage, we've made through four points so far. And so here's what they've been. First, justification by faith alone was how sinners were made right with God in the Old Testament. Number two, justification by faith alone is proven by God saving Abraham. And we saw Old Testament passages quoted and we saw those things. Number three, justification by faith alone is proven by God saving David. And chapter four quotes a, a passage from the Old Testament where David was made right. Psalm 32, we also saw some other places there. We also saw justification by faith alone is proven by circumcision. And we saw the fact that Abraham was made right with God before that ordinance was ever given. And circumcision was actually meant to serve as a metaphor for the gospel. So all of these Old Testament examples showing this, today we come to number five, justification by faith alone was God's design so that salvation would come by grace, not by law, but by grace. So if you're wondering where's the connection to the Old Testament, this is the Old Testament connection here. Looking at the law, justification by faith alone was God's design so that salvation would come by grace grace. Grace and not works. Grace and not law keeping. It's not earned. It's gifted. It's not a paycheck. It's not compensation. It's not you do this, 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 and this, put it all together in a package and okay, I'll pay you what you, what you've earned. It's not earned. It's given as undeserved mercy. So let's look at how the text shows that and also see how it brings us deeper into our understanding of grace. So we're looking at just one primary point today. This number five got two parts underneath it. The first one's gonna be, wanna walk through the steps of the verses here to make sure we understand what's being said because you know some of these places, God's asking us to go deep in our thinking. Bible never lets us just stay children in our thinking. At times calls us to go deep. So there's another kind of mini argument laid out here. Let's work through it and see it. And then the second part will be thinking specifically on grace. So verses 13 to 16 make a couple of points. We're going to come back next Sunday and see the second point that it makes. I'd really love to do all of it at once, but we just can't stay all day. Like for instance, when it says that the descendants of Abraham are heirs of the world, I'd love to talk about that today. That's good stuff. Okay. There's more to see there, but we're going to, we're going to focus on this, this other one here. But look at verse 13 with me. Let's start working through the passage. 
for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So here's what that means. When God made the promises to Abraham, take a step back for a second. Do you remember the promises made to Abraham? If you want to look them up sometime on your own, Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, primarily 12. God comes to this idol worshiping pagan, Abraham, not a righteous man, reveals himself to him, makes promises to him, okay? Promises like being heir of the world, promises like eventually were shown, metaphor for heaven, this is part of what is involved in this. When God made the promises to Abraham, they were not based on the condition of obedience. So in other words, God didn't come to Abraham and say, look, I'm revealing myself to you, if you will obey me, then I will give you these good things. That's, that's not what happened. The promises were simply spoken to him. Abraham's job was to believe. His job was to believe God. God said, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation, a father of many nations. Abraham was 75 years old and had no children. God then brought Abraham on a process to bring him to where he believed God. So the point being made here is the promises weren't based on obedience, weren't based on law, uh, weren't based on works or being a good boy. The promise was just simply based on faith. Believe and there's faith. Look at verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void. And the promise is nullified. Why? Why would the promise be nullified? Look at the next phrase. For the law brings about wrath. If the promises made to Abraham and to his descendants, and, and by the way, that's you, Christian. That's you, Christian. That's part of the point that the text has been making, going to continue to make. If you are in Christ, you may not be a blood relative of Abraham, but in Christ, by faith, you've become a faith relative of Abraham so that the promises made apply to every believer. That's part of the point he's making over and over again. He's the father of us all, Jew and Gentile, who trust in Christ. By faith, we are descendants of Abraham. So more on that to come. But the promises made were not based on obedience, not based on works, if they were, here's the point he makes, then no one would get them. If the promises had been based on obedience, there would never be a recipient of the promises because no one can obey God good enough to get an inheritance from him based on self-made righteousness. Because friends, God demands perfect and pure righteousness to be right with him and to enter his kingdom of heaven. All right, you want eternal life? Awesome, great. Here's all you gotta do. Perfect, pure righteousness. He's perfect and pure. He demands perfect and pure righteousness. Now, where do I get that? Because you could be saying, oh, okay, that doesn't sound like what I believe. Where do I, where do I get that? Get that in places like Galatians 3.10, 
where scripture says, are you trusting in the law to be right with God? Then you're under a curse. Why? Because cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law. The point of that passage being, if you're going to ba- if you're going to trust in your goodness, then you have to be all the way good. If you're going to believe that you're right with God based on obeying the law of God, then you have to obey every law of God, every single jot and tittle. James says that to break the law in one place is to just shatter it like a window. Okay, you break one, you've broken all of it. You have to keep all of it. Romans. 623, the wages of sin is death. If this sounds unfair, and the world thinks it does, we have to understand the storyline of the Bible. We were created like this. We were created perfect and pure in righteousness in Adam, and God said, continue this. You want life? Continue in this. We rebelled, we fell, we lost our righteousness. But this is a point that the Bible's making over and over again. God is righteous, his kingdom is righteous. He is not going to allow any unrighteousness into there and that's a good thing. I'm glad the kingdom of God is not going to be an unrighteous place. Why? This is an unrighteous place. And look what happens. Look what happens when a world gets jacked up with unrighteousness. The kingdom to come is going to be perfectly righteous. God can't stand unrighteousness. He despises unrighteousness. He demands perfect and pure righteousness. I know that's different than the God that you hear about from the world. Like everything we're saying here is so different than what you hear out there. Read the Bible, you'll see sinful humans are all the time inventing their own gods. You want to know the true God? The true God is spoken. It is unintelligent. It is inconsistent to listen to what sinful people say about God and what they invent about him instead of the living God speaking from heaven and saying, here is who I am. We have what he's spoken. And what he says is he is perfectly pure and he demands perfect and pure righteousness. And according to our behavior, we don't have that. If you imagine that right now you're going to stand the judgment and God's going to say, you know, come on in. You did your best. You know, you did pretty good. You were better than the rapist. Come on in. You know, there was an old country song that said something like that. It's disgusting. And I like old country. But there's an old country song that, where the singer imagines himself standing at the gates of heaven before he gets in, and he hears the voice from, from within, and then hears the refrain. He said, come on in. You did the best that you could do. There's a little bit of right in every wrong. There's a little bit of me in you. Well, swallow the vomit that started to come in the back of your throats there. The only thing good about that song is they've eventually taken off the radio, but friends, this is, this is the gospel according to the masses. This is generally what is believed by the masses, that God's just going to say, you guys, oh, I just love you so much. I just, can't, I just can't be mad at you. Come on in. You did pretty good. You did your best, which by the way, is never true. Like I, I hate that phrase. You did your best. It's never true. 
Doing your best is dying in the process of accomplishing what you set out to do. It's never true. We don't do our best to obey God. That's absurd. That's the whole point of what sin is. But what the Bible says is this is not what God is going to say. The gospel according to the masses is that your righteousness is good enough, but God speaks from heaven and says he only accepts perfect and pure righteousness to be right with him. He also speaks from heaven and says to mankind that our best righteousness is as filthy rags. Here's the Hebrew, soiled menstrual cloths. And yeah, I think our modern translations should stop pandering around and just say some of those things clearly because part of the point is God is intentionally saying something pretty graphic about the soiled quality of our righteousness. Can I be frank with you? Your righteousness isn't fit to clean toilets in the kingdom of heaven. There is a righteousness that is available to us, the glory of the gospel is that a perfect and pure righteousness was acquired by the obedience of Jesus. He kept the law of God. He did what we could not do and his righteousness is counted as ours. The whole thing we gotta get through our minds is this. When I stand before God, I bring nothing whereby I have entrance into his kingdom. I am completely dependent on something outside of myself, what Christ has done on my behalf. He took my unrighteousness to the grave and I get his perfect and pure righteousness. If God based the receiving of the promises like heaven, based on your righteousness, the promise would be nullified. That's what the verse is saying, because you ain't getting it. The the principle is this. If you base a promise on an impossible condition, then the promise becomes meaningless. Okay, so it'd be just like, if you're a dad, of course you've done this, because we like to ridicule our children. If you have one time said something to your child like your eight-year-old daughter, if you'll go dunk that basketball, I'll buy you a pony, okay? The promise is meaningless because the condition is impossible, okay? And what scripture is saying here is this, if God had based the receiving of the promises on obedience, then it would be meaningless because the condition would be impossible. Instead, God based it on this. He based it on faith on faith. They were based on faith. And and so why? Because the only thing that the law of God does for us sinners is bring wrath. So that's the meaning of that first phrase of verse 15. The law brings about wrath. That's the only thing we're going to get from obedience works. If you're, if you want compensation, what you're going to get is wrath. What the Bible is telling you is you don't want compensation from God. You want grace. You want mercy. That is there. Nothing wrong with nothing wrong with the law of God. The problem with is us. But here's the next phrase, and I'm gonna go ahead and tell you. It's a little bit of a sub point. He doesn't run down the rabbit trail that he could have right here. He's gonna do that later. But it applies right here, and there's a reason why he gives it. So read the rest of verse 15, and I'll tell you what why he gives this here. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. The little sub point that he's making there is a re-emphasis of the point he made back in chapter two, and he's setting up something he's gonna come back to again, partly in chapter five and some other places. But the point is, 
many of the, like say the Pharisees, the, the Jewish hearers, but who, had, who were rejecting the gospel. So let's take the Pharisees. They assured themselves, how? What have we seen the book of Romans show us? They trusted in their circumcision. Well, this passage has, uh, has already gone through and said, you can't trust that. Circumcision doesn't make you right with God. So stop trusting that. But they also trusted in this. They trusted in we're the people who have the law of God. We're right with God because we have the law. And part of the point that this letter has made is everybody has the law of God. The Gentiles have it, even the ones who don't have the Bible, don't have the scriptures written down on paper or in stone. They have it. How do they have it? Written on their hearts. But there's a contradiction that's pointed out here. The Pharisees would look at the Gentiles and they said, they're not right with God. They're sinners and they don't have the law of God. And here's the point that God makes. It's genius. I'm telling you. Like the point is absolutely genius. He points out a contradiction in their thinking. So they said they're sinners and they don't have my law or they don't have God's law. God responds to them and says, if they don't have my law, they can't be sinners. Why? Because what is sin? Sin is the breaking of the law of God. These Gentiles, think about it, when was Abraham justified? Before circumcision and before the giving of the law. Abraham had the law of God written on his heart the same way that the non-Jewish Gentiles had the law of God written on their hearts. Do you see the genius of what he's doing there? He's making a connection in the way that Abraham can be the spiritual father of all of the Jews who believe and also the spiritual father of all of the Gentiles who believe, who are not circumcised, because when Abraham was approached by God, came to faith, this was the condition he is in. So again and again, what keeps being thrown out there is, you can't trust the law. You can't trust that just because you're a part of a people, that this is what makes you right with God. God has made it this way by faith, so that Abraham can be the father of all who believe, Jew and Gentile. He is silencing the objections of those who would say, Abraham can't be the father of the uncircumcised. By the way, it is unfortunate there are still those who are claiming Abraham can't really be the father of those who are uncircumcised when the passage is so clearly saying that he is. It all comes this way. It doesn't come by works, doesn't come by law, doesn't come by circumcision. How does it come? It comes this way. Verse 16, and this is the second part of what we're looking at today. For this reason, it is by faith. In order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. All right, think through the wording that's used here. Now, there are times where we gotta get technical. This is one of those times, but it's in order to understand, okay? So let's, let's think very carefully. He says, for this reason, what is the this? Well, it's referring to what he, the point he just made. That perfect righteousness is impossible by our works because we're sinners. So for this reason, it is by faith so that it may be in accordance 
with grace. That phrase is a really big kind of revelation in the passage. It's a really big point in the passage. It's according to grace. And Christian, we have to understand grace if we're going to understand the gospel. Now, I know we say that quite a bit. We've said that quite a few times as we studied through the book of Romans. That's because there are quite a few truths that we got to get. So I can say things like, you have to understand who Jesus is to understand the gospel. You have to understand what justification is to understand the gospel. And we have to understand grace in order to understand the gospel. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's impossible for a five-year-old to hear the basic message of the gospel and believe that they don't have all of the definition of justification memorized. That's not what we're saying. But as God wants us to progress and grow in Christ and fully understand the gospel, there are certain truths that we have to get. Grace is one of them. Now, this phrase, this phrase used here in verse 16, according to grace, it's been used another time in this passage in, in, in chapter four. If you look up to verse four there, read it with me. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor. There's that big word credited. Two weeks ago, we spent the whole Sunday thinking about that word credited as a favor, but as what is due. That phrase there, credited as a favor, it's the same Greek word as ver, uh, phrase as verse 16, according to grace. Now, we don't, we don't like get into original language stuff to like try to feel important or smug or anything like that. There are times where it's, it's very helpful. It's times like this. There's a reason why the church must not lose the study of the original languages. We need these things. The phrase goes like this. Remember, we studied the word legitsomai, okay? I know you memorized that. You know at least one or two Greek words. That one you've got memorized, committed to memory, credited, imputed, counted, reckoned. That was that word. The phrase up there in verse four goes, legitsomai, kata, according to, charis, grace. Credited according to grace. What verse four says is that the one trying to work their way into heaven, they're not going to get justification uh, credited as a favor. If they were to earn it, it's compensation. It's what you're due. It's you earned it. But verse five goes on to say, but he who stops trying to work themselves into heaven and believes in God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as Righteousness, But this phrase, according to grace, such a, such a critical phrase, such a beautiful phrase. This is what's being shown here. Justification, being right with God, does not come according to compensation. It comes according to grace. Those two are at odds with each other. Grace is God giving his favor his kindness, his love, his mercy. And the whole point is it comes to us sinners, even though we don't deserve it. And, and in fact, friends, the, the Bible's so genius. Like just, I just continue to be amazed as, as we look at things so that we would not misunderstand. So that Satan could not distort the meaning of words or our own distorted minds corrupt the meaning of words. The Bible oftentimes done this it will define important words. 
You, you know what I mean? We've, we've talked about that before. Like, how, how do we know that whenever we use the word love, that we mean the same thing that the Bible does? Words change over time. And that part of like the dilemma of language, oftentimes words change me. How do we know we mean the same thing that God does? How do we know that we don't have a totally different theology because we think something different? Well, how about a whole chapter where God defines the word love? 1 Corinthians 13. And he's doing this kind of stuff all the time. It's really important that God defines the word faith in Hebrews 11 verses one through six. And I'm telling you right now, and it does kind of apply here. So just a, a moment of a rabbit trail. It is really important that God defines the word faith because many groups have corrupted the definition in order to twist the meaning of the Bible. And that's satanic. That's satanic. For instance, many have come to passages like this, and here's what they've said. They've even produced translations of the Bible which match their own views, and here's what they'll say. Abraham was faithful and was justified. So rather than Abraham had faith and was justified, they twisted to say Abraham was faithful and was justified. Totally different meaning. Completely different meaning to go from faith which is belief to say faithful, which implies obedience. Do you see the twisting that's happened there? Sinful man is always twisting the gospel to go to salvation by works. This is Satan's agenda. We see it all the time. So it is crucial that we have places like Hebrews 11, one through six, where God gives the definition of faith, the biblical definition. Okay, so rabbit trail over, come back here. God does this with grace. He does this with grace. Verses four and five of chapter four is God defining grace. So read it with me again. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited according to grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Let me take you to one other place where the Bible defines grace. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse six. In the previous verse, he mentions grace again. Look at verse six. But if it is by grace, what's the it? Salvation. If it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So do you see the point there? According to the Bible, the very definition of grace to sinners is God giving us better than what we deserve out of God's loving kindness. Uh, one scholar explains it. Grace is God overriding our demerit. So as we stand before God, we have piles and piles of demerit for our sin. Those demerits should have consequence. Grace is God giving us his favor out of his loving kindness. But the whole point is it's better than what we deserve. Some have said, I, I think that this definition is a, a helpful way of saying it. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. Grace is God giving us better than what we deserve. Grace is God, grace is God giving us favor that we do not deserve. Some have come up with that little acronym, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's, that's helpful. But if we look at, the, look at the text again, notice that we have some more logic that's set up here. In verse 16, there are three so that phrases. So it'll say, for this reason, in order that, and so that. Those phrases are used whenever you're wanting to say, 
that this previous thing was done for the purpose of this. Okay, so I need to get my car fixed so that I can drive to work. I need to get my car fixed in order that I can drive to work. You see, see the point there? What comes before is for this. We have three of those phrases as we work through verse 16 there. So it starts off, for this reason, our righteousness is inadequate. For that reason, it comes by faith. In order that it may be in accordance with grace, when God designed this salvation to come by faith, why did he pick faith? God, God has the freedom to do this any way that he wants to. Why did he pick by faith? Why didn't God design salvation to come um, whenever you gave a certain amount of money to the poor or something like that? What we're being shown here is the way that God designed salvation was to be in keeping with eternal truths. If it had been designed to come like you finally gave enough money, like if everybody had to give $100,000 to the poor before you die, you do that, you get heaven, that would have misrepresented reality. It would have misrepresented his righteousness and how we can be right with him. But in order to understand his righteousness and how sin really is viewed by God, he ordained it in this way to come by grace. So if we ask, well, why by grace? Well, the text gives two reasons for that. Both of them are beautiful. One's in verse 16, one's in verse 20. So look at verse 16 again. So after it says, in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed. That's the first reason. The first reason God has designed for salvation to come by faith, by grace, and so the promise will be guaranteed. For faith is what makes the promises of God assured to us, guaranteed to us. Now, now, what does that mean? If it were based on works, then we would always be in danger of losing it. So let's pretend for a moment that up until today, you had lived perfect and pure righteousness. You have not, but let's pretend you had lived this up till today. You are always one second, one stupid decision away from spoiling that righteousness and therefore losing. But if God gives it as a gift, if he gives all of it in one moment as a gift of grace and on the basis of faith, then the promise can be guaranteed. And the part of the point he's making here is guaranteed to all Jew and Gentile. This is also part of um, another dagger to the belief that you can lose your salvation. You know, uh, that, 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 that view has 400 problems. Here's 401 that you can add to that list. The scripture says that salvation is guaranteed. The promises are guaranteed to the one who trusts in Christ by faith. But then here's the second reason that it's given in accordance with grace. It comes in verse 20. But let's read some verses around it in order to understand it. Start in verse 18. What we have here is Abraham's faith is explained to us. It's shown to us. So start in verse 18. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb Yet, with respect to the promise of God, 
He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Abraham trusting God gave glory to God. Friends, Jesus so trusting in ourselves leads to glorifying self. It is glorifying self. Trusting God according to grace glorifies God. Now, why is that? Well, do you fall all over yourself in gratitude when your boss gives you your paycheck? No. Why? Because if he didn't, he's breaking the law. You've earned this. That's compensation. But what happens if this afternoon, one of, your, one of the members of your church family stops by your house and brings you a gift that they bought and it cost as much as a month's paycheck? What's your reaction then? You are falling all over yourself. You're, you're resisting, or at least pretending to resist. You're, you're thanking them. You're asking them, why? Why did you do this? What, what's the difference? That's the difference between compensation and grace. We're not grateful for compensation. Grace leads the heart to gratitude. Grace leads us to worship. Grace leads us to be amazed at this. God has designed salvation to come by grace so that we would see his worth. We would rightly understand the universe, who he is, and that we would glorify him. God designed salvation this way for us to see him, see his glory. At the end of the day, the debate between are we saved by works or saved by faith boils down to this. Who gets the credit? Who gets the credit? Who gets the honor? Who, 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 gets, who gets the spotlight put on them? The issue is worship. The issue is joy. The issue is the glory of God. And friends, one of the chief reasons you need to know this, one is for your own soul salvation, Another reason is this rightly shows the glory of God. The idea of salvation by works robs God glory he's supposed to be getting. It robs him of glory that is his. And it's another way of humans always jumping up in the air, trying to grab glory and take it to myself. It's part of, it's part of the human condition. That's part of the sin nature. The sin nature is always fighting to try to bring credit, honor, glory, attention, and spotlight to myself. The one true and living God is jealous for his glory. Listen to me very carefully. If the God you worship, the God in your mind, if he is not jealous for his glory, then it is not the God of the Bible. It is not the Lord of heaven and earth. The one true and living God begins to reveal himself early to say he is jealous for his glory. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Believing justification by works is trying to take glory from God and give it to myself. Isaiah 48, for the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another. He is not going to let you take credit that belongs to him alone. He is jealous for his glory and it is right 
that he is jealous for his glory. And we, the people of God, recognize that he ought to receive all glory. The Pharisee, in that opening illustration, claimed self-righteousness, congratulated himself when the whole point is, friends, the whole point is that God is the one to be glorified. The gospel, the gospel pulls us away from the mirror where we're trying to just examine ourselves. You know, there were no mirrors in the Garden of Eden in perfection. Our obsession with mirrors has come as a result of our obsession with ourselves. I want to look at myself. I want to behold myself. I want to admire myself while taking a selfie and reading Self Magazine. And that's a metaphor for how we can view righteousness before God. I'm not trying to say mirrors are evil. We have them in our house. But it is to say that there's, there is an obsession that humans have of all the time. I'm all the time wanting to, wanting to call attention and admire me. The gospel pulls us away from mirrors. And the gospel casts our eyes to Christ. It says, look at his righteousness. Now the gospel comes with a mirror. But what the gospel does is turn the lights on in the room. We, we like to dim the light so that my muscles look as good as possible in that mirror. The gospel turns the lights on. Ugh, didn't look as good. The gospel turns the lights on the leprosy that I was hiding. Shows us the hidden parts of our evil. The gospel uses a mirror. And then whenever we feel desperation as to, I'm not as good as I thought I was, then it calls us to look to Christ. He's perfect. He's pure. He kept the law of God. His righteousness can be yours. The gospel calls us away from exalting self to exalting God. The world never stops preaching, believe in yourself. The Bible never stops preaching, stop believing in yourself. Look to Christ. The Christ is the beauty. Christ is the, the treasure. The doctrine of justification by faith guts self-glorying. It guts boasting, boasting in self, and it gives us a new boast. It gives us a new boast, boasting in the cross of Christ, forgetting myself and boasting in Christ. Friends, this is why the Bible is so adamant to teach many of the truths that it does. This is why the doctrine of election is taught literally from Genesis to Revelation. Because it glorifies God in a way that is just astounding. But why is that doctrine fought against so much? Why have there been literal fistfights? Ain't joking? Literal fistfights break out over the doctrine of election, that God is the one who initiated salvation and he is the one who comes to us. Why has that happened? Man is always fighting, clawing, clamoring, and trying to say, well, at least this part is mine. My free will. Don't you take my free will from me. You don't have any free will. You have a will, but it ain't free. It's in bondage to sin. You need this, but our pride is all the time all the time trying to grab onto more glory. The heart of the matter is always just how much glory do I get in this? In salvation, just how much glory is ours? The biblical answer is none. You were not saved by anything you could do. Even, faith is the anti-work. Faith is the opposite of a work. 
Faith is the receiving of what someone else has done. And even that faith we had to have help with, Scripture shows. It is all the time showing us these things so that we will be led to gratitude. And as I'm explaining a lot of these things, do you see how a lot of our, I don't mean our, but maybe our bigger Christian cliches, so many of them are out of step with the Bible. Quite a few cliches. You know, they get put on coffee mugs and Facebook memes. Quite a few of the songs on Christian radio communicate this kind of, this kind of message. God recognized your worth and he decided to send Jesus to save you. How special are you that God said he wanted you? That's not the truth. That's not the message of the Bible. That's not what happened. The message of the Bible is that you made yourself odious to God. He didn't recognize some inner beauty in you and was attracted to you. Sin, unrighteousness, it is the single most ugly thing that exists to God. Does that make sense? There's nothing in the universe more repulsive to God than sin. That's not how we think. We are grossed out by a lot of things way more than sin. We're grossed out by, I'm not trying to be dramatic for dramatic sake, but the Bible does take us on some of these paths as an example of a metaphor. We're grossed out by trash, maggots, rotting meat. But the Bible shows that even more, even more as repulsed as you and I would be at the oozing pus coming out of a gangrene wound falling into your bed. By the way, that is a metaphor in Leviticus. I'm not just like making that stuff up for dramatic sake. As repulsed as you and I would be at that, even more God is repulsed by sin. It's the ugliest thing to God. It's not how we think. Even we as Christians struggle. Sin's bad, but come on. I can still be a good person. Sin is the most repulsive thing to God. And when we come into the kingdom and our minds are awakened to think rightly, we will see and feel just how awful, how wretched our sin really was. And on that day, there will be no songs sung in heaven about my inner beauty. All songs will be about the glory of grace. All songs will be about, though I made myself odious to God, yet still he came to me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That which is most repulsive to God, I filled my life with. My words, my deeds, my thoughts. And even when I tried to do things like love, it was still tainted with the poison of selfish intentions. What is ugliest to God I filled my life with, and yet, and yet, he sent his son, accepts us by faith, credits us with righteousness that we could never return. That's grace. Grace is not God giving you what you ought to have. The whole point is grace is God giving us better than what we should have had. The message of the world is you're beautiful and God recognizes your beauty. The message of the gospel is you're odious, but God is gracious. Christian, 
Here's the primary application. Boast. And boast hard. But boast in the cross of Christ. Turn the attention from self and to Christ. We exist for the praise of the glory of his grace. You who are not in Christ. I beg you, stop believing the message of the world, which is so clearly in error. You have no righteousness. To, to say it a more modern way, whenever you, whenever you stand before God, he's not going to say, you did good enough. You were good enough. He's not going to say that you were a good person. You need Christ. Every soul must have Christ. Look to him. Believe Imitate the tax collector in that parable. Believe, cry out to him, and God promises salvation to all who do. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for what you have done in Christ. The more we meditate on it, the more we think about it week after week, day after day as we come back, oh God, we're just more and more amazed. Lead us to be grateful. Lead us to honor you, and I pray out of our gratitude, out of our sense of wonder and amazement over the fact you saved us, God, I pray that we will live lives of obedience, delightful service out of gratitude. Please bless us, so God, give us your grace as we leave. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's message titled, Grace Glorifies God. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.